also an arms race. And once one group starts to speak in extreme terms, it almost seems like the group who is not participating can be losing. Before, at least, we could say, well, look at this extreme person. We will ostracize them. They will learn the error of their ways. Nobody will buy into these stories. But these days, it just doesn't stop because there are so many ways to connect with other extreme speakers. It seems that the old rule of just don't feed the trolls doesn't work anymore. And so without, in a way, replying in force, I worry that the new kind of speech that's insulting to everyone and everybody or most people feel uncomfortable about might just become the norm and people just might retreat and just not engage anymore because it becomes too toxic. In a way, you know, they take your main square and you just stay home. magnitude of interlocking wicked problems we humans face today is daunting and made all the worse by the widening schisms in our public discourse, the growing prominence of hate speech and prejudicial violence. How can we collaborate at scale if it's not even safe to act as citizens to participate in a sufficiently diverse society without becoming targets? The World Wide Web has made it easier than ever for hate groups to organize but also grants new power to those willing to oppose the hateful. New tactics such as counter-speech have sprung up to depolarize society. But do they work? Can organized nonviolent interventions restore civility and save our public spaces? Or does the ensuing arms race only bring our fora closer to collapse? Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and each week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week's episode features three authors of new research on hate speech and counter-speech. SFI Applied Complexity Fellow Joshua Garland, Professor Mirda Galasik, and External Professor Kian Ghazi Sahedi, who, along with co-authors Laurent Hibert Dufresne and Jean-Gabriel Young, have discovered patterns in the Twitter data that just might help save the web. Over the next hour, we'll discuss how they have trained AI to classify hate speech and counter speech, and what this reveals about the hidden structure of our conversations, and how it offers hope for social media just when we need it most. To learn more about SFI's work on counter speech and the new Counterbalance seminar series, please visit santafe.edu counter. If you value our research and communication efforts, please consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash podcast give or joining our applied complexity network at santafe.edu slash action. Also, we hope you'll help this show find new listeners by rating and reviewing us at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening. Well, Mirza, Joshua, Kian, it's a pleasure to have you on Complexity Podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And I know that the papers that we're going to discuss today are kind of unique to this show in two ways. One is that this is a very timely and intense area of study, a challenging topic. And then the other is that you are in the middle of the second paper. This is like probably the earliest that we've even discussed a particular piece of research on the show. So we're getting to, we're like volcanologists here down in the mouth of the science volcano, and uh, it's really exciting. So probably the right place is to, to start with just a little bit of personal background and introduce yourselves and, and talk about how you got into science and, and how you got into this particular project and in whatever order y'all want to speak. So my name is Kian. I'm a computer scientist by education. I live in Germany. Um, did my PhD on robotics and evolutionary algorithms. So I tried to understand how the brain works and try to find some principles in artificial systems that could explain how biological systems work. Then I moved to Max Planck about 12 years ago, 13 years ago. Did my postdoc there, also my habilitation. I'm also working on mainly on understanding how our brain works. 
last research question I was interested in was um, understanding how our body contributes to intelligence. So how much less does our brain have to think because the body is the way it is. I actually want to measure that. I want to quantify that. But living in Germany and seeing what's happening, right? Seeing the rise of an alt-right party and also seeing how civil discourse is shifting and kind of breaking down. I was wondering if we could kind of measure what's going on. And I started discussing that with, with Josh and Murta in a very early stage. We had this really small question. We weren't sure if that is actually something to, to go after. And from the small question, then this project kind of, um, we, we, the three of us kind of generated this project. Is that helpful? Yeah, yeah. What about you, Josh? So I'm, I'm currently a Applied Complexity Fellow at the Santa Fe Institute. Previously, I was a Meteor Fellow at the Santa Fe Institute. I kind of grew up as a mathematician and then slowly, I guess I started out very theoretical in most of my work. And then I slowly and progressively moved more and more towards applied things, mostly because as I saw, as I was doing theoretical research, theoretical math, I really enjoyed it. But I also saw kind of the world in my eyes sort of falling down around me. And I was really curious, like as a mathematician, how could I contribute to helping on these problems? And so, for example, I worked a long time in cardiac electrophysiology. I worked quite some time in climate research and studying the paleoclimate. And now I've primarily switched to working in hate speech. And so I sort of take the mathematics and the time series analysis and machine learning tools that I'm comfortable with and try to utilize those coupled with experts in the field to understand and try to have an impact on real societal problems. And so this project is in some way no different than those projects for me. It's a I see a huge problem right now in civil discourse um, and a transition from civil discourse to really polarized, hateful discourse. And I'm curious as a mathematician, how can I contribute to real societal change in that regard? So I think in terms of how we got into this project, I've seen this big shift in civil discourse in the last two or three years towards being much more hateful, much more polarized. And there doesn't seem to be a real social theory about how you interact with these people. And so, you know, if you're an immigrant journalist and every single time you post a story, you're constantly being attacked by the alt-right and saying, you have no business here, you shouldn't be reporting this, or they're doxing your children, or any number of things that these people do, then what's an appropriate response? How do you come back at this person? Do you even come back at this person? And there's really no good social guidance for that. And so, you know, I would see people around me that are being attacked in this way, or female scientists, for example, that are saying, you have no business in science, you shouldn't be a scientist as a woman. And they have no idea how to respond. And so, you know, for me, that's, that's an interesting question is that, you know, what's an appropriate response when you're being cyber bullied or when there's, you're receiving hate speech online, do you respond? Do you try to get your friends to help you protect you? Do you just block the person? Do you ban the person? What's the appropriate response? And, you know, Keen and I have talked about this several different times for a variety of reasons. And, you know, recently there is an alt-right party that's gaining quite a bit of power in Germany um, called the Alternative for Deutschland or the AFD. And alongside them, there's an active hate group that promotes their message. And I think to call them anything but a hate group would be a mistake. And what was interesting is that they self-marked themselves. So from a computer scientist perspective, that's very interesting because a lot of times distinguishing hate or not hate is quite hard and subjective and like, well, that's really just right versus alt-right. But the big difference here was that they actually started marking themselves as being part of this hate group. And that was very useful as a labeling set for a machine learning person. And then when Keen and I both got really excited was when a uh, TV show host, uh, Jan Bowerman, announced uh, a movement called Reconquista Internet that was aimed at countering this group. And we were lucky enough to have a lot of insider information from an anonymous source that told us the IDs and a lot of different things about this group so that we could start monitoring their counter speech efforts as well. And so from a machine learning perspective, this is fantastic because now I actually have a data set where I can start thinking about these questions that I've been mulling around in my mind for some time and thinking about kind of a rigorous approach to quantifying the effectiveness of counter speech and, you know, what are the effective strategies and things like that. And so for me, it was a no-brainer to kind of jump in and start helping Keen with this project. Mirta, for those who didn't hear episode nine with you, how would you introduce yourself and your line into this particular study? Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'm, I'm Mirta Galesica. I'm a professor at the Santa Fe Institute. And uh, I got lucky to get involved with these guys studying hate and counter speech because it's uh, in line with my long-standing interest in social norms and how they're formed and how they affect what we believe and how we behave. 
And one important way in which social norms are formed are through language, through communication, and for observing what other people are saying or doing. And so if people are starting to uh, uh, endorse more and more certain ideas, uh, that might be potentially dangerous in some way or could um, be threatening to certain groups of people, well, they're still you know, only in the realm of language and some people say, well, this is not that important. Eventually, once put in the open, these ideas have the potential to convince others about them. And eventually, if enough people share a certain idea, they could start acting on it. And so I do believe that we cannot look at language in vacuum and that it's not necessarily okay to just uh, use tactics that we used before when we were not so connected, such as uh, don't feed the trolls or just don't answer and people will just go away. They will, in this super connected world, they are not going to go away because it's easy to find like-minded people even if they are very rare online. So it's important to somehow react and make sure that at least many different lines of discourse are open and are talked about. Hate speech uh, has this property of being threatening and uh, invoking negative emotions in people, fear and anger. And many people just tend to withdraw and, and would like just to leave the situation. And, and that's the problem because then there is no alternative narrative to that. And so to an outsider, this might, or somebody who stand, to somebody who stands by, this might signal that this is actually an acceptable way of thinking, behaving. And so, one way that has been considered a long time and was implemented, it's implemented still in, in Europe, to counter just at least the most, the, the worst kinds of hate speech is censorship. But of course, that's problematic for many ways. Who decides? How is this implemented? How to recognize this in ever-evolving language? And the, another promising uh, way is actually empowering citizens to counter hate. And as Joshua Kim was saying, I mean, there is no established way. We don't, there is no good theory of how this should be done. We know something from research on bullying, this is traditional research on bullying in schools, bullying in workplaces. We know what empowers bullies. We know something about what victims can do. But in the online realm, it's mostly qualitative research. And one big problem is that there is no uh, large data sets uh, that are where, as Joshua was saying, where there are labeled speakers of counter speech and of hate that could be studied and where we could, co we could have this, we could study over time and see how, this, how these two different kinds of speeches interact with each other and what actually is effect on counter speech. And so when Emelkian and Joshua came around with this huge data set and their enormous ability to analyze this in a matter of what seems to me now as a psychologist, I was just uh, enchanted by this because that's, this is the very first time in social science that we have such huge data set spanning how many six years and millions and millions of tweets running in parallel with many important societal events terrorist attacks political rallies and where we can study how these two different speeches interact so it's basically a gold mine <laughs> for many different things we can do and so we did some of them now and we are still in process of doing many others yeah so that's a great place to dive in. Uh, I want to back up a little bit and talk about the earlier efforts that have been made to try and, and classify hate speech and the, the comparably fewer efforts that have been made to, to classify counter speech and to talk about how people were trying to go about this and, and you know why uh, you feel that that was insufficient enough to launch into this project and 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 then in the sort of a longer frame how you i mean this is like the subject of the entire first paper but how did you think differently about this how did you decide to adopt a different approach and what factors ended up being uh, more useful than some of the earlier studies that have been done on this so I would say hate speech classification has been around for, for quite a long time. There are a lot of attempts and there are a lot of, you know, good uh, algorithms that are achieving good scores. The problem always with hate speech, and, and this is uh, also a problem for us, is that language is continuously evolving, especially given that the algorithms for discovering hate speech are used to ban the hate speech. So you're basically removing the language that you just discovered. And of course, another kinds of language are being developed. And so this is an ongoing battle. So that's, and that's a very interesting area and has a lot of players. The area of counter speech is less well studied. Perhaps one reason is that social media companies are hoping that they could just somehow censor it, ban it, filter it out. And this is very difficult for reasons just 
mentioned. Uh, and so the idea of empowering citizens to do counter speech is actually relatively new. And it has been promoted, especially in the context of cyberbullying of uh, youth, but in the context of hate speech, relatively new. And so there are uh, several studies, really good studies uh, on counter speech, where, however, their limitation is that they were done on, on relatively small data sets, you know, up to 10,000 posts classified by hand, you know, by students, you know, or by the researchers themselves. And so this limits both the kind of the time span in which, we can, in which the speech can be analyzed and the, the diversity. And so it's, I think there is good kind of qualitative insights. There is some good beginning of formulating the theory of counter speech, but there is still not enough empirical data to really discern the many ways in which people can engage in counter-speech and in particular to measure how it then interacts with the hate speech. That was just outside the realm of possible for most researchers um, in the area of counter-speech so far. You take it away, Joshua. Yeah, I think one of the biggest differentiators is just the labeling problem. So all the data sets in the past or a lot of the, the prior studies, which are fantastic studies and really got this kicked off, were really relying on hand labeling every single instance. And so there was really no automated way of doing this. And I think a big part of it is there aren't very many organized counter-speech groups and certainly not organized counter-speech groups that self-label themselves. And so maybe there was a few people trying to resist hate speech in some particular way, but they're not labeling themselves and they may be taking part in other things. So you really have to go through their history of what all, the, all the things they're saying and say, you know, break this apart. Like this was counter-speech. This was not, this is counter-speech. This is not. And it's super time consuming. And as a result, a lot of the studies that have been published before ours, you know, in some instances, maybe had a hundred instances of counter speech. And that's really challenging to have any kind of language model when you have maybe a hundred sentences to learn from. And so that becomes very challenging. And so one of the things that really differentiated us was that we were able to collect not hundreds of instances, but tens of millions of instances to start learning with. And I think this really set us apart from that group in terms of that. But yeah, I mean, so hate speech is like hate speech classification has been around a long time and people have been working on it, but it is super subjective. And what I consider hate speech, someone else might not consider hate speech. And so again, what was really nice about this was that we have a group that's labeling themselves as such. And so we know, and we have people that have dedicated accounts that like just for hate speech. And so we can really kind of pull and extract a lot of really good sample sets to learn the different languages and learn a lot of the covert signals and overt signals that they're that they're putting forth as opposed to having to try to rely on some very small hand-coded set maybe one thing to add is that we also see that identifying hate seems to be easier because hate is mostly directed to one specific group of persons immigrants for example and then the, the content is pretty much similar but for counter speech, it's more diverse, right? It can be irony, it can be making fun, it can be sending pictures. So it's way harder to identify and classify counter speech than it is to identify hate speech. Yeah, I, in your section on just defining for the purposes of this study, hate and, and counter speech, you know, I, I thought it was useful that you clarify that there's sort of both a narrow and a broad definition of hate speech and that like you all have already alluded to, it has in certain respects more to do with the impact or the outcome than it actually has to do with the context in this expanded sense, you know, that it's it's not simply about overt insult or discrimination or using the intimidating or pejorative language, but can also just incite hate. And so, as you're saying also with counter-speech, that one of the tactics for counter-speech, and I want to get into this a little bit more with you later about the different tactics, but one of those tactics is just sort of absurdity, that it's, it's, it's kind of like just jamming the conversation. And so, that it's not necessarily specific to particular symbols or signifiers. So, just as a way of framing this within a sort of broader complex systems understanding in terms of understanding rather than say the anatomy of a particular organism, it's functional relationships within a food web, you know, and that's kind of, that's kind of how I understood this is that, you know, what you're talking about are the ways that we can identify these patterns of, of behavior activity in terms of their fruits, socially speaking, in terms of the way that they're, they're organized structurally. I think one thing that sort of touches on you, like taking this from a complex systems view, you know, a lot of the prior studies have viewed 
both utterances of hate speech and counter speech in isolation. And so you have a isolated, this particular utterance of hate speech, but you don't have any context of the conversation at large. And so it's really hard to understand effectiveness and understand the interactions between hate speech and counter speech if you only have utterances in isolation. And so taking more of a complex systems perspective here, what we are more interested in is just individual utterances. We were interested in the dynamics and how those dynamics between the two groups played out over time. And so one thing that really sets apart our study and the way that we're approaching the study from other groups is we actually have hundreds of thousands of fully resolved conversations between these two groups on isolated grounds. And this is not something that other people have, period. And maybe they have a few conversations, but definitely not at the magnitude or over the longitudinal depth that we have. And so one of the things that we tried to do was we actually were able to collect nearly 200,000 reply trees or these conversations that occurred between the two groups. And then we can use our classifiers to then actually start extracting the dynamics that counterplayed. Like for any given conversation in a year, what was the proportion of hate speech? What was the proportion of counter speech? Did, was counter speech directly replying to hate speech or were they just replying to the conversation? You know, we're several different macro and micro level analyses of the dynamics from both a dynamics perspective, but also from a network perspective, as we can discuss if you'd like. And so one thing that really kind of shifted our thing from just a machine learning classifier task to more of a complex systems lens was shifting into studying the dynamic interplay between these two groups by really in-depth studying their interactions. Well, I'm wondering if we should explain why we use the apply trees and, and where we got them from. Would that be helpful? Yes. That was my next question for you. So so um so what we look is look for is also where where to where to scrape or where to get the reply trees from so what would be a good good source for these reply trees and and in germany we have certain news agencies which are considered very reliable and actually very neutral as far as can as far as you can be in, in journalism right and what we saw over time is that with this alt-right party getting more alt-right getting more extreme to the right, we see that these kind of news outlets are more under attack, right? They get more replies to each tweet that they tweet. So their tweet level is almost constant, 40 tweets a day, more or less. But then we see as the public discourse shifts more to the right, and as, as things can be said today that were impossible to say years ago, we see that there are more and more replies to every tweet of, of these agencies. And um, actually looking at that, happened even to myself, when you see like um, tweets by this news agency, you see disconnected replies, right? You see that some some new tweet about migration pact, for example, over a couple of days, and you see very hateful tweets, very hateful answers to these these messages. And what can happen is that you get the impression that the news agency is tweeting one thing, but that the public thinks something different, right? And it can happen that somebody neutral, just like a new user to Twitter, just looking for news input kind of drifts off, right, to, to get more and more extreme to right. So that's why we look for these neutral grounds and to, to see how discussions evolve on, on these Twitter feeds and how effective counter-speech would be in this, in this environment. But please add to that, Josh and Lotta. So we actually took a very kind of standard machine learning approach to this. So our special sauce, if you will, was the data and the labeled data. And so we had a bunch of labeled data and that made it much easier. But the actual pipeline is not very extraordinary. Um, and so what we effectively did was we trained document embeddings is what they're called. So we trained a bunch of document embeddings and then we combined several document embeddings coupled with logistic regression in order to do the classification stage. And so would it be helpful if I go into what any of those yeah. words mean? Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to make fewer assumptions on the part of our listening audience. So if you're listening and you're like, wow, they're, they're really dumbing it down for us, then sorry. So I think one of the, the fundamental things you have to do when you're building a machine learning model for language is understand how they kind of mathematize language. And so, you know, when you see a tweet in English or in German or whatever it may be, that doesn't directly translate to something that a neural net or a classifier can use off the shelf. And so what you have to do is you have to take the language that you're trying to use and you have to translate that language to something that math understands. You need to tr translate it to some vector representation. But the, the difficulty in doing that is translating the sentence into a vector representation that somehow has the same meaning as the sentence in English or in German. And that's actually the really hard part because you want to kind of build in context. You want to kind of build in as much as you can sarcasm and context 
and little nuances in the language and understanding. And so you don't want to simply map like every word to one element of the vector and then just have like the first element of the vector is a, the second element of the vector is the, that doesn't make any sense because then the vectors don't kind of play with each other in space, right? And you kind of want them to interact with each other in space in a way that you would think of them interacting with um, if you, you're just having a conversation. And one way you can do that is you can kind of build off this intuition of prediction. And so as I'm listening to someone speak, I have this kind of model in my mind that I'm trying to predict the next words that they're going to say. And so I can kind of keep up with the conversation. I can play this out. Our minds are, whenever I say fire, there's only so many words that I can say after fire and make sense. So maybe I say fireman, maybe I say fire truck, but I'm probably not going to say like fire Soviet, right? Like I'm not going to like jump completely out of context. And so basically I train a neural net to guess the next word that I'm going to say. And as the neural net gets better and better and better at guessing the next word that I'm going to say, what it does naturally is starts understanding the context of the words that I'm saying. So it understands that fireman and fire truck all kind of go in the same part of semantic space and policemen are maybe a little bit different, like police cars and policemen are maybe in a little bit different part of space, but they're sort of in the same context space, right? They're sort of in the same area of space. And they're probably very different than schoolhouse or Congress or these other kind of things that you can think of, right? And so what you can do is you build up this kind of semantic contextual understanding of language. And then we can utilize that to map words and language into some kind of higher order space where we can then take and put classifiers. So then I can say, Okay, take all the words that sort of represent emergency, like first responders into one bin and take all the words that kind of represent government and put them in another bin. And you can start taking these vectors and then kind of mapping them into different things, mapping them into different categories. And it's no different than what we do in the hate speech and counter speech categories, right? So what we do is we have these neural nets that build up a semantic or this kind of understanding of German language that can kind of take a political German tweet, map it into some space that kind of understands the context as best as it can. And then what we can do then is that once we have all of the vectors mapped into some big space and labeled, we can then say that, oh, all of these vectors that clustered next to each other are hate speech. And all the vectors that clustered over here are counter speech. And all the vectors that are kind of mixed in the middle are neutral speech. And then we can just use logistic regression or a simple classifier to then split that space and say that give it an out of context tweet or a tweet that we haven't seen before, we can pipe it through the neural net so we can map the tweet text or the German or whatever it is to a mathematical representation. That mathematical representation is then piped into somewhere in this vector space. And then we can just ask, is this vector more similar to counter speech? Is it more similar to hate speech? Is it more neutral speech? So that's kind of the big high level idea of how we accomplish this. And then there's tons of nuances that you can go into, right? So I just gave you the most vanilla possible representation, but then you can start thinking about like, well, I can weight them by, you know, you know, what is the term frequency versus the inverse document frequency? And can I build that in? And so where do I start the weights of the neural net? Do I start them in the pre-trained state or do I train them in a randomized state? And you can start thinking about all of these different ways to kind of tweak and make it better. But at the end of the day, really, those are just kind of like turning the screws on the engine and the pipeline kind of remains the same. And so another thing that we do on top of that is that we don't necessarily just build one model because there may not be a best model, right? So one thing that you should know is that I just described this piece of machinery where you take spoken language and you turn it into math space. There's a million different parameters that you can tweak and turn and twist. And each time you twist and turn these different parameters or knobs or screws in your algorithm, the way that the language is represented is totally different. So the way that it's, you know, for example, you could think about asking it, don't predict the next word I'm going to say, predict the, the third or fourth word I'm going to say, or, you know, skip all these middle words or only consider, only try to predict words that I've seen a hundred times or a thousand times. Um, so you can imagine there's all these different knobs you can turn. And so one thing we do is we parse our data set, these millions of tweets that are both hate and counter speech. We parse them into all sorts of different buckets. And then we have neural nets with particular parameters and logistic regression with particular parameters. And we say, go learn this language model and go learn a separation or a decision boundary between hate and counter speech. And then we call that an expert. So we can give an expert a spoken piece of language. And then we can say, given that spoken piece of language, put it in a bin of hate, counter, or neutral. 
We then have a different expert, which you can think about as just a different person's understanding of language. So it's going to see a different subset of German. It's going to see a different subset of hate speech and counter speech. It's going to be trying to accomplish different tasks. So its semantic understanding of the language will be very different or quite different than the first expert, or at least that's what we hope it will happen. And so what you can do is that you can train many, many, many of these experts, and then you basically collaborate and you say, so I give the same tweet to many different experts that have very different understandings of the language. And then what I hope is that each one of the experts can vote on whether it thinks it's hate counter or neutral. And so then once you build that framework, you can kind of have a consensus protocol where you can say that like, well, these three think it's hate speech, but the other 22 think it's counter speech. So it's probably more counter speech. And then you can start defining thresholds where you have to be super confident that it's hate speech or super confident that it's counter speech, because now you have this kind of consensus protocol that you can build off of. And that's exactly what we do. So what we'll do is then we take a tree or we take a conversation that occurred on Twitter and we have all these different experts that have been trained on this very diverse data set with different parameters and different understandings of the language. And we go down the tree, we go down the conversation and say, each node in this tree, is it hate speech? Is it counter speech? Just regular neutral, just people talking on Twitter, right? Because you don't expect every single conversation to be pure hate and pure counter speech. There's going to be just, you know, I really like fries or whatever they're saying on Twitter, <laughs> just kind of mixed in. And we have to be able to distinguish that, right? And so what we can do is we can ask the panel of experts to be a certain level of confidence. So if you're at least 93% confident that this is hate speech, we'll mark it as hate speech. Or if you're 93% confident this is something a counter speech person would say, we can mark it that way. And then you can actually just eliminate everything in the middle. And that's the protocol we take. What that allows us to do is then study these hundreds of thousands of conversations we've collected in this longitudinal framework and study, you know, this is how hate speech has evolved. This is how the proportion of hate speech has increased or decreased. This is how counter speech is affected. Um, this is how the intensity increase, right? Like, so you can imagine studying intensity by thinking, oh, suddenly we're 99% confident that everything in this conversation was hate speech. So the intensity, like what they feel comfortable saying is becoming much, much more intense where it's not even a question if this is hate speech anymore. This is not borderline cases anymore. It's very adamant. And so by passing all these conversations that we can really start understanding the dynamics and how they interplay between each other. Yeah, just to pull out a little bit and again, look at this in a, a sort of a general way. One of the things that I really think is going to become kind of more and more applicable in terms of the way that we negotiate the ambiguity of our complex world in the years to come. You know, this kind of approach also could work very well. It probably is being studied in application on the recognition of deep fakes and this kind of a thing, you know, where like we're, we're getting to a point where having total confidence about something or relying exclusively on one point of view is no longer sufficient. And I really like not only that you're talking about training multiple different experts in this way and comparing them and creating like a voting system and establishing a, a range of confidence, but also that you tested that against human judges. And, you know, it starts to look kind of like the so-called centaurs where you have teams of humans and machines working together in contests. Do uh, any of you want to speak to how you selected uh, like a panel of human judges? Because that's kind of an interesting, although, I mean, at least to me on the outside, I'm sure this is pretty common practice, but I found it kind of cool how you checked your, your math against human intuition here. So I talk to that? Yeah, you're the human so, expert. At <laughs> least <laughs> so... We found a, a number of German native speakers through uh, Amazon Mechanical Turk, and we filtered them through several iterations. They all had to pass a German test, which was a pretty difficult task, uh, which was similar to the task they were supposed to solve, and that, um, and that involved uh, them understanding a, a story in German that was followed by several comments. Uh, of kind of readers of an article in German, and they had to say whether the readers agreed or disagreed with the article, which required quite a nuanced understanding. And then we gave them uh, some of these tweets to code. They had to say whether this is hate or counter or neither. And then in the process, we've seen that some people are doing it kind of much better than others. Like you know, we were inspecting some part of this, uh, of what they did. And I realized that some people were just doing this randomly. I had a couple of conversations with some people who said, you know, I really need the money. I'm sorry I did everything randomly. Please pay me. I don't speak really German, but, you know, 
somehow they passed the test. Anyhow, so uh, after a couple of such rounds of, of testing them on smaller samples, we ended up with I think around 25 really good coders that I hope also to use in the future that then reclassified. Like, so we, we did them, then, then they did everything for us. And so uh, interestingly, these human coders were extremely well related to the, uh, to the uh, classifier scores, but more so for the hate part of the speech. As Kia was saying before, there are many ways in which one can do counter. And so the correlation was a bit lower for the counterpart. It was still, you know, monotonic relationships, so it was nice. But humans were, tend to classify counter closer to the neutral speech than they classify hate. So we learned something from that as well. I have something to add. You know, one thing that I think is really important when doing any kind of artificial intelligence is to keep humans in the loop. And I think that's something that's sort of underappreciated in a lot of artificial intelligence. And I had a recent, actually not recent anymore, I think it's like been five years, with uh, one of SFI's external professors, Barbara Gross, who's one of the big figures right now in artificial intelligence in my mind. And she talked about that we really shouldn't be shooting for artificial intelligence, we should be shooting for assistive intelligence. And we should be giving them tasks, giving artificial intelligence tasks that humans aren't good at and pattern recognition. But then we should be verifying these things and really putting a human in the loop to kind of subsidize that. And so when Mirto was willing to start a Mechanical Turk thing where we could kind of verify that our classifiers weren't just absolutely crazy, that they weren't labeling very strange patterns, but that they were matching with human intuition, I was all about that. Yeah. So I hope now's a good time to dig into your findings and to talk about what you noticed in both the structure of conversations as well as how these things played out over the years that, of data that you collected. So our main question is, you know, whether counter speech worked, is it effective in curbing hate? And in particular, whether organized counter speech is better than individual efforts? And it is a very, very difficult question because it is a multifaceted problem and you can, that you can observe in many different ways. For example, just think about it. How would you go about it? Well, you can measure the amount of hate and counter speech online, the proportion of it. You can measure the average score that a classifier or human gives to this hate or counter speech to see whether the intensity rises over time. And you can measure it on a more finer level. Like you can, you can look at how often is hate speech replied to, how often is counter speech replied to, and what does it do? What happens after a hate speech is posted and a counter replies? What does it do to the rest of the conversation? Then you can also measure number of likes and retweets, and these kind of indicators. And also you can go even finer, and that's actually a topic of our further project, is like what type of counter speech is best? Should you use humor? Should you try to convince with facts? Should you post pictures of puppies to drown the discussion or K-pop? <laughs> Or, uh, you know, uh, what is actually effective? So this would help us then to empower citizens to do it better. You know, so we were looking at, so because this is such a multifaceted problem, we were, we were actively looking at different, uh, different measures of the, of the effectiveness. And we find that on all of those, they all suggest that there is value in counter speech. And Kian can speak also more about that, because I know that you're not, I'm not trained to speak about But there is value in counter speech. We see that after this Reconquista internet shows up, the organized counter speech movement, there is uh, an increase in frequency of counter tweets and a slight decrease in the frequency of hate tweets. The counter speech has more power. It is more likely to change the discussion afterwards in a reply tree, in the conversation. So once the counter speech shows up, it is now more powerful in changing it towards counter speech rather than keeping it hateful as it was. And so uh, it seems to us in particular that this organized element is important because there was counter speech before. We see it very prevalent across the whole period we study from 2015 and earlier. We see a lot of counter speech, not only when this organized group shows up in um, May of April, late April, May of 2018. So there is, it's always there. But when organized hate shows up at the end of 2016, beginning of 2017, the individual counter speech loses its power dramatically. The whole kind of narrative turns red. Red is our code for hate in, in our graphs it becomes much more difficult for individual counter speakers to balance this discourse. Why? And we know from all literature on bullying, it's difficult to stand up to the bully when one is alone, especially when, the bull when there are several of them. 
you know, it is threatening. It, it provokes all kinds of negative emotions. And also one doesn't see much point if, if one's voice is drowned immediately by a lot of hate messages. So it's, it's emotionally taxing and it doesn't seem useful. And so people slowly give up. But once the, the counter speech starts to organize in April, late April, May of 2018, then we see the, the difference because now they can come in groups. They know that they have counter speakers have support of each other. There's several of them to the several haters, and this both helps them to overcome these negative emotions related to this, and also to, to enforce their own social norm, to show that there are more, there's more than one person who is speaking up. So, uh, yeah, that, that's what we find. But what we see in the conversations when with the rise of the organized counter speech group is kind of signaling, signaling behavior. Right? We see to reply with a hate tweet, sometimes you know, hashtags used. Right, and these hashtags—it seems like these hashtags are used to to call other people from the group to to join the conversation, which wasn't there before organized counter speech was there. Right, and one thing we like to understand is: this, do we see patterns? Right, do we see that there's a hate tweet and somebody replying to that, and a specific group of of people always replying to to hate speech, and did this have an effect on reducing hate over time? Because if we look at the, at the reply trees, the data we have, it seems that there's something that's going on in there. I should add a, you know, a standard disclaimer. I mean, this kind of data is wonderful, but we cannot decide anything about causal effects. It's very difficult. And so, of course, society is very complex. There are many things going on at the same time. And our data strongly suggests that there, there is an association between organized counter-speech and a more balanced discourse. But we should know that the whole society at that time, German society, was going into a direction of really being pissed off with so much hate. So there was, there was uh, I, again, Kian, who lived there, will know more about this, but there were also some you know, large-scale organized rallies against uh, racism. At the same time, there was also kind of pro-Nazi rallies. So there was a lot of things going on at the same time. And sometimes it's difficult to see the pattern, but because we are looking at it for so many different ways and so many different measures, it seems to us that what's emerging is a picture that could suggest that there is actually effect of organized speech. Yeah, actually, one of the, the key takeaways I, I got out of your current paper in draft was, you know, towards the end, you, you mentioned that from this data set, the extremity of both types of speech increased over time. So you're talking about a more balanced discourse on, on the whole, but it's occurring within an increasingly extreme and, and polarized environment. And I'm just to link that to other work that's gone on at, at SFI where it looks for all the world like there's there's a number of different ways that modern society is sort of pulling apart at the seams and and given the your own sort of personal story Mirta about you know growing up in a nation coming apart I'm curious what the orbital view of that is I mean on the one hand obviously counter speech reducing the frequency of hate speech is good in its own its own right there's like obviously but on the other on the other side you know this increasingly polarized discourse is it helping or is it just sort of contributing to you know the balkanization of our cultures here yeah it's, it's an arms race once one group starts to speak in extreme terms it almost seems like the group who is not participating can be losing. Now, at some point, before at least, we could say, well, look at this extreme person. We will ostracize them. They will learn the error of their ways. Nobody will buy into these stories. But these days, it just doesn't stop because there are so many ways to connect with other extreme speakers. And so the force of extreme speech continues. It seems that the old rule of just don't feed the trolls doesn't work anymore. And so without, in a way, replying in force, I worry that the new kind of speech that's insulting to everyone, and everybody or most people feel uncomfortable about, might just become the norm and people just retreat and just not engage anymore because it's becoming, it becomes too toxic. In a way, you know, they take your main square and you just stay home. And so at some point, and it's, of course, it's not healthy in the long run. It's a very stressful situation. It's like organism fighting a disease, if you want. It's stressful. It does, if it takes too long, we are, it's not going to be well for the organism or for the society. But at some point, I think we need to activate our immune system and fight back to, and hopefully, you know, in a while, 
we can come back to a more neutral discourse and discuss soccer, healthy diet options, or whatever we were doing before this all started. That's my impression, but I'm sure that, you know, this is basically, we are all learning as we go. So I'm sure there are many other opinions, maybe among my co-authors. Yeah, I mean, we actually see this exact thing in the data, which I think is really interesting. And so one thing that was surprising to me, but showed up in the data was that, you know, before Riki Germanica, which was the hate group, showed up, what you see is that most conversation sort of started on the hate side of the spectrum. So they were a little bit more hateful than kind of neutral discourse, but only slightly so. And before that, what would happen is that you'd have kind of slightly hateful responses to these new things. And then people would come into the conversation and kind of neutralize the conversation. So people would come in and respond and respond to the hate. And it would kind of, the whole, the whole attitude of the conversation would shift back towards neutral conversation, right? So some people were angry and responded right away. People would kind of talk some sense into them and it would kind of calm things down and you'd kind of come back to like a neutral discourse. And that kind of happened what seems like emergently or naturally uh, over time. But what happened with Reconquista Germanica, we see a big shift once they came around. So once there was organized hate, what happened was that the conversation started hateful. And then instead of kind of shifting back to neutral or instead of being kind of watered back down, what we see is that they would either stay hateful or get even more hateful. So they would be able to reinforce the hateful rhetoric as opposed to kind of this natural diffusive measure that was occurring. They were reinforcing the hate. And what occurred over time was that this reinforcement mechanism got more intense and more intense over time where people got more and more emboldened to say things they're not supposed to be saying in Germany where hate speech is illegal. And so you kind of look at a conversation and you see that like, oh, well, the whole discourse is getting kind of more and more hateful and now it's even more hateful the next day, but you kind of get, you know, it's like the lobster in a pot effect where you just see it getting more and more hateful. And so the whole, what we were seeing before Reconquista Internet or the counter was that the, the conversation would start out hateful and then drift more and more towards hate. And you saw sort of the norm or the natural state of these conversations being more filled with hate. What you see right after Reconquista Internet is an ability for the conversation to be drugged from this fairly hateful state down into a neutral or counter state. And so you see this like return to more of a neutral state. But then it did seem to have sort of this like relaxation effect after the shock point. So what we see is that Reconquista Internet kind of shocked the system away from this kind of hateful norm back to something more neutral. But then there was retaliation, right? So then you see the different hate groups retaliating. You see more people jumping on that bandwagon. And then you see more people countering them. You see more people hating against them, more people countering. And then you see this split in discourse where you actually see a lot more polarization. And so from one aspect, right? So you can say that, that overall, the, if you just think about um, effectiveness of counter speech as being this like single facet where it's like, did the proportion of hate speech decrease over time? Then I think you can see in our data that the proportion of hate speech did decrease over time. You actually see this gap between kind of neutral counter discourse and hate discourse being like 15 to 20% on average in conversations. You see that actually dropping significantly after you can use the internet just closer to, you know, a couple percentage points. So you do see this massive drop in proportion. However, so from that, like, yes, counter speech worked, it was effective, it dropped hate. But then you think about the other facets of like, what did it do to our society? And it may be, you know, some of the measures we're currently looking at are polarization measures. And it does seem that like having an organized hate group and an organized counter group grabbing the conversation and pulling it in two different directions, it's splitting the conversation a bit. And that's actually causing a great deal of polarization. And so while it brought down hate, maybe it caused polarization. And so maybe it's like, does that count as being ineffective or is it effective in a different way? And it's a really, really hard problem to think about, especially in a really growing polarized climate, not just in the U.S., but internationally, like in Germany and Brazil and all these different places. And so one of the things that we're, our team is really struggling with currently is how do you even think about effectiveness? You know, if you view it from one angle, yeah, it was effective, but it caused these other problems or it fixed this problem, but it caused this thing to happen. And then you mix into this like whole conversation, these causal effects. Well, there's also political rallies and there's also all these other things happening at this time. And it makes it a really, really fascinating, really interesting data set to work on, but definitely a really challenging thing to think about. One of the most interesting things for me being the Santa Fe Institute social media guy, you know, because part of my job, unfortunately, is trying to participate in the 
kind of dehumanizing affordances of social media as as they exist uh, in 2020 and being a technologist of attention, trying to game what we know, what I'm learning from SFI about neuroscience and, and cognitive science and 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 use it to craft the the stickiest, most attractive communiques and you know people like uh, Tristan Harris have spoken about that there's there's this other arms race going on in you know the tech sector that is how do we mop up the most attention and like one of the more interesting pieces for me therefore out of this uh, second draft paper was on what it is that hate speech groups and counter speech groups are actually looking for as targets and then how they're engaging the features of the media that they're choosing to engage with. I would love to hear one or all of you speak to what properties are actually getting identified here and then what it seems like those properties indicate about the strategies of these groups and how they're how they're deliberating their methods of engagement here. Yeah. And so in an effort to understand the dynamic interplay between the counter and the hate group, one thing we are interested in is inferring the strategies that are being used by them, right? So we're viewing it from the outside. And so we're not privy to kind of the war room of either Reconquista Grammatica or Reconquista Internet. So we don't know what strategies they're imploring, right? So we can record the conversation and we can say, this is hate speech. This is counter speech. This is how they interacted. This is neutral speech. We can do that. But we can't say that, like, we know that Reconquista Grammatica went after this particular tweet because they used more hashtags and they used more media or what was it that attracted so much attention from the hate group to a particular tweet. And so one thing we were interested in is doing inference on the strategies, right? So can we kind of reverse infer what strategies were being utilized by the hate group and the resistance group kind of in the background. And so the way that we approached that was with two of our other co-authors that aren't present, John Gabriel at university of Vermont. Now, I believe he just switched, I think from university of Michigan and Laurent who was, a former postdoc at SFI and now as a professor at Vermont. So that was in collaboration with them. What we did was use uh, choice theory to understand and infer the choices that are being made by the group. And so the way that this kind of plays out is when you're a user that goes to a social media conversation, like a Twitter reply tree, you have a choice of where you attach to and who you reply to. And do you reply to the root node or do you choose to reply to someone that used your favorite hashtag or particular media or particular content? Or do you, do you only reply to your friends who are also counter speech? Do you also only refer to your friends that are only hate speech? You know, what is the strategy that's being employed by these two groups? And while one thing that we're interested in is in the first place is effect is counter speech even effective is that let's say that it is, let's just make the hypothesis that counter speech has some effect on discourse. Then what is the most effective strategy in doing that? And in order to answer that question, we really need to be able to infer the strategies that are being used. And so to do this, we use choice theory. And that allows us to infer the choices that are being made when people approach a conversation. And so we have several interesting findings in the paper about what choices each group is being made. And they seem to be much more structural than content-based, which we found very interesting. And I think one of our primary conclusions from this analysis was that both Reconquista Grammatica and Reconquista Internet were very good at choosing to attach to the tree in ways that made them maximally and so they were, seemed to be much less interested in particular content, but replying to the tree in a particular way where their content would be most visible to an outside observer, which is a very interesting perspective. And the way that they did this is by leveraging things like the display algorithm in a way that made them be able to do this. So for example, like replying directly to the root or replying to very new tweets or replying to very heavily liked or retweeted tweets. And so they could kind of leverage the display algorithm in ways to kind of propagate their message forward. And, you know, just like we can't claim causality with a lot of the time series analysis we're doing, we also can't say that we can know the strategy they're using or know that like Reconquista Internet was fundamentally leveraging Twitter's algorithm to maximize display preference. But what we see is that the way that they chose to interact did maximize their display chances. And so that's kind of the reason we took that take in our paper, which we found really exciting. There's a, another thing here, and I, I want to be respectful to y'all and, and wrap this here shortly, but a key point that I was really looking forward to discussing with you, uh, Joshua, I remember you giving a talk at SFI, I think it was last year, were you talking about what you can see from orbit 
with these conversation trees and how the network structure of these different conversations yields some insight into the nature of those conversations. And to me, this was such a profound flip in the way that I thought about the possibility for designing future user interfaces. You know, given that the Twitter API is available, you know, what would it look like and what would the benefits be of, for example, and I know this, I've been haranguing you about this for almost a year, but the idea of designing a different user interface for Twitter that allows you to see the quality of a conversation before you decide to participate in it, looking at the structural features instead of the content features. So could you talk a little bit about that piece of it, about what you can see just by looking at the graph rather than by digging into the tweets themselves? So in some of our preliminary analysis, what we saw was that there was structural differences about how the hate and counter groups interacted and how the neutral speech interacted. So there's different distributions and the choices that they're making. And so just like I was just talking about the choice theory, what you can say is that, you know, given that you're part of the hate group, what is your strategy in attaching to the tree? Given that you're a counter group, how do you attach the tree? But you can also ask if you're just a regular generic citizen, that's not part of the hate of the counter group, how do you attach the tree? And some of our analysis showed that looking at how different people chose to attach the tree was predictive of whether it was a hate member or a counter member or just a neutral citizen. And so I think that's what I was talking about then. And so, you know, in our, this early analysis, and I think we should probably check this because I think it changed quite a bit because we changed the algorithm a bit. But what we saw was that hate attached directly to the root. So you saw a lot of hate speech attaching directly to the root node. So they were kind of not participating in the conversation. And for example, you saw a lot of counter speech, which was attaching to the leaps or attaching to like the circumference of the uh, network. But I think that changed quite a bit. Mirta, do you remember this? Okay. Wondering if you could use that to actually identify hate and counter accounts. Could that be like one piece of the puzzle? I think if you actually got some really good understanding of the choices that are being made in these two strategies, that could be utilized. And I think one of the more interesting ways to utilize that would be actually to change the display algorithms to kind of mix between the two, right? So if there's no display algorithms where I know exactly the kind of tweets that are going to be displayed prominently and the kind of tweets that are going to kind of get pushed down, then as a, if I want to push my message as a member of a hate group or a member of a counter group, I can leverage the display algorithm to kind of propagate my message. And there's been many studies that have shown that, right? where groups on Reddit or groups on Twitter have attached in particular ways to conversations or liked in particular ways to propagate a message forward and to make it seem like it's more prominent message than it really is. And surprisingly, you can do that with like very little interaction. You can kind of propagate a message to the front page of Reddit and things like that. And so what I think might be really useful is that if companies like Twitter or Facebook or Reddit kind of looked at what are the strategies that are being leveraged and they were able to mix up their display algorithms so that you can't leverage these things as easily. I think that could be super beneficial. I was saying if you could if you could change the display algorithm, you could actually reduce hate speech. Is that something you're saying? Maybe. I think that you know, especially yeah. if you could if you yeah. have a fixed display algorithm, you can weaponize yeah. that. Right? Yeah. As soon as a, yeah. as soon as the display algorithm is fixed, it's weaponizable. But if you randomize the display algorithm on a daily or weekly basis where you can't, you don't know what's going to be the prominent tweet that's shown, then it's really hard to weaponize that display algorithm. And that's, that's all I was getting at. So kind of messing with the strategy of posting hate. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that would probably strike at the heart of the ad revenue model, though, right? (laughs) You got to have one that doesn't give massive preference to engagement, because that's a huge and well-recognized piece of, you know, the way that social media has contributed to the polarization of discourse. You know, pissing people off is a better way to get eyes on your post. No, I think that that's that's very fair. And, you know, it really gets back to kind of the multifaceted nature of effectiveness, where if you do counter speech and you drive everybody off the platform, and so there's no hate speech, but there's no speech, nobody's talking at all, nobody talks to each other, was that actually effective? From Twitter's perspective, that's awful because there's no more ad revenue, right? So it's very ineffective to have counter speech if you drive everybody off the platform. But by the same accord, if all of the Nazis come in and they're just hate speech, hate speech, hate speech, and that drives everybody off, okay, was that effective? Because then they're no longer propagating their message. And it's this really interesting interplay between what do you mean by when you say effective and what do you mean when you try to parse this apart? And if you view it from like an average citizen or view it from a politician standpoint or view it from the ad revenue model standpoint, effectiveness wildly changes. And it's this kind of 
moving target that we're trying to analyze in this work, and it's proving to be super challenging. So that that brings us into the last question that I have is about what are the glowing open questions that you're hoping to answer in this paper in its final form and in in follow-up research? And then what are you hoping that people latch onto and take home from this and consider how that might sort of change the way that we, you know, like the, the, the everyday practical implications and so on? You spoke to some of that already, but I feel like that's a good place to button this up. And I guess what do we want the final takeaway to be? Maybe I can, I can give you a shot. Mm-hmm. So my, my hope would be from the current research that we have that the take-home message is um, organize yourself. That seems to have an effect. It seems that organized counter speech is more effective in countering hate. That would be, be my hope. In the long term, I would hope to, I know it's not realistic, right, but maybe have like a handbook of counter speech. What would be like the best strategies for specific forms of hate? It's not like a one-to-one rule. So if this comes, then do this. If this comes, then do this. But maybe what would be the, the most effective strategies, more, most likely effective strategies for specific types of hate? And how could you counter that in a civil way without destroying the discourse? That would be my, my hope for long, for long one. Yeah, I agree with that. I think... Uh... And now that we, I think the first question was like, does it all matter? And it seems that it matters. And now the next question is, how can we tailor it so that it's even more effective? How can we empower others to do it? And that's what Kian is saying. It's like, what are the strategies that actually work? Should we attack? Should we laugh? Uh, should we help the victims to survive more? What, what can we do? And in a way that doesn't just accelerate the arms race, hopefully, right. I imagine. Exactly. Bring it back yeah. to civil discourse, right? What I said before, let's talk about recipes and football scores again and and not about violence, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, can we curb hate or, you know, can we come up with effective strategies that are backed by science that really tell you what is an effective way to counter hate without just increasing polarization. And I think that polarization is destroying our society in so many ways. You know, we're getting to a point in the US where you can't send a news article from particular outlets to another friend without being worried you're gonna ruin that friendship. And people say two words and you just know, oh, they're on the right or they're on the left. And you just don't speak to them anymore. And it's just toxic. And that's not the way that we're gonna go forth in our society. We can't have a transmission of ideas that way, you know? The right has great ideas, the left has great ideas, and we need to come together to be a better people. And I think that one of the most important things that I hope, you know, you said what I get to hope, so I get to pick anything I want, is that we come up with effective ways to curbing hate, both on the right and on the left, and we return to a civil discourse where we can come together as a society, and we can talk about pizza, without worrying about whether Obama had pizza or if Trump had pizza. That's not the point, right? We can have a great pizza recipe and just discuss that and come back to civil discourse. And what I'm hoping is that we can come up with a rigorous social theory that tells people, how do you counter hate in a productive way that's non-polarizing? And I also hope that our work alleviates a lot of the ethical burden on social media platforms. Right now, you know, the government has kind of shelled off in the US in particular, the government's kind of shelled off all the social, ethical, legal responsibility of censorship and propagation of ideas onto these social media platforms. And it's really not fair. So, you know, you take Facebook, you need to worry about censoring hate speech and you need to be worried about censoring these groups. And it's your choice who you ban and how you propagate these ideas and how you deal with misinformation and disinformation. And it puts a huge amount of burden on these companies. And I think if we could empower citizens to do this and citizens to come in and say, you know, we don't support these ideas. We don't hate immigrants. We don't hate women in science. We don't hate all these things that the alt-right is against and gives you proper ways to respond in a way that shifts our society back to a neutral place. I think that would be a fantastic outcome of this study. And I think something that's actually achievable that we can, we can do. Wow, you mean, I, I'm imagining this like fantasy future in which Facebook is actually paying me to engage in depolarization of discourse that we've been volunteering for years. But anyway. One of the exciting things about the way our group is approaching this problem is trying to bridge the gap between academics and industry. There's a lot of problems in academics that can't be solved by academics alone and the same on the industry side, like they need an academic industry perspective. And so one of the things our team is trying to do is marry together, not just mathematicians and social scientists and network theorists and all these different groups on the academic side, but we're also trying to do is bridge the gap to actual industry companies. So we're actually trying to talk with Twitter and Facebook and Reddit and actually bring them on board because what we think is 
to actually get a meaningful impact in the space, you not only need academics thinking really hard about the background theory and talking to each other across disciplines, like we always do at SFI, we really need to bring an industry and say, you know, how do we take what we're finding and these, what we're understanding and apply it on an industrial scale? And so we have a recent initiative at SFI where we're marrying academics to industry through a fellowship where each fellow is tied to academic advisors as well as being tied to industry advisors in an effort to kind of bridge the gap between academics and industry. And so that's called the Applied Complexity Fellowship. And that's a brand new fellowship that we're starting at SFI that we encourage you to reach out and discuss with us if you're interested. Awesome. It's been absolutely wonderful to talk about your research with you and uh, thank you for doing this. And, and And there's a lot of stuff that comes out of SFI that I feel has really sort of profound social implications and this is right up there at the top of the list so thanks all and and i hope that this podcast draws some useful attention to to you and your research thank you for having us yeah thank you very much thank you for listening complexity is produced by the santa fe institute a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of new mexico For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.